0: Ted Scheinman's Camp Austin has been called funny and insightful, self-examining without being self-conscious, compact without feeling cramped, and a delight in invitation. In a haze of mourning, crumpets, and restrictive tights, Scheinman delivers a an hilarious and poignant survey of one of the most enduring and passionate literary coteries in history. Ted Scheinman is a writer and scholar based in Southern California, where he works as senior editor at Pacific Standard Magazine. He taught courses in journalism, satire, and poetry at the University of North Carolina and has written for the New York Times, the Oxford American Playboy, Slate, and many others. We're thrilled to have him with us this evening. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thanks to Skylight Books for hosting and also to the Los Angeles Review of Books for co hosting. Um, I'd just like to reiterate this exhortation for you to pick up the quarterly journal. It's a really, really great magazine. Um, so I'm here to discuss my book about the worldwide society of Jane Austen superfans, known as the janeites a term coined by George Sainsbury and immortalized in a 1924 short story by Roger Kipling. The Janeites are a delightful and curious species, a scattered band of acolytes who troop around the country and jet-set to London or Bath or Mumbai or Tokyo, their luggage bursting with petticoats and paperbacks, and hand annotated event schedules, and endless spools of laminated name tags. They attend the big annual Jane Austen Society of North America meeting, known as JASNA, but they also bop through a less trafficked circuit that, if one has the stamina, need never end. There is always another symposium at the local chapter of JASNA, or a talk by a professor at a nearby university on Austen and the Real Housewives of Uppercross. <laughs> Or else, perhaps a screening of the Bollywood smash, pride and Prejudice. Like members of any secret society, J-knights identify each other through subtle or silent codes, and initiates all carry their motley badges of membership in the global Austin circle, from novelty pens to silk themed t-shirts. Keep calm and find Mr. Darcy is the most common. Um, to playful indicators embedded in email addresses. For example, eleanor-1811 at bartoncottage.net, will inspire trust among all similarly devoted correspondents. The Janewrights argue passionately and intelligently about whether Captain Wentworth is a more ideal mate than Mr. Darcy. They write fanfiction that would surely scandalize Austen herself, and they unravel various crucial mysteries in the corpus, including the important question of how many umbrellas appear in the novels and how many of those are furled. (laughs) The answers are seven and six, respectively. (laughs) The Janeites come to laugh and to learn, to dance and to listen, to admire and to be admired, to teach and be taught, to question their assumptions about Jane, and to confirm them. It is an intoxicating society, and some of their secrets are revealed in my book. My account of the broader diaspora of Janeites will necessitate a brief sketch of my family and myself. My mother, a professor of English, is herself a devoted scholar of Austen, and, as you will soon discover, that devotion did not confine itself to her professional life. It has recently come to my attention that I was meant to be born a girl named Jane. (laughs) Everybody expected it, from my grandparents, who had four girls and no boys, to my mother, a professor of English and a devoted Jane, to my father, who took the premonition as fact based on everyone else's blissfully firm convictions on the subject. I'm told that when I emerged demonstrably male, my mother was briefly stunned though she assures me that she got over the shock very quickly and came to accept me as a boy. My sister, who arrived four years later, fulfilled the prophecy and was named Jane. Not long ago, one of my sister's friends asked her if she'd been named for Austin. Omitting the secondary consideration that Jane is also a family name, my sister admitted this to be the case. The friend offered a sunny observation. Well, it could have been worse. She could have named you Fanny. You don't know how close you are to the truth, Jane replied. Fanny was the family dog. My mother, indeed, could hardly have groomed me better for Janeism. As I've said, a professor of English at a very small private university in upstate New York. Mom has been teaching and writing about Austin for nearly 40 years. She is, bless her heart, a neoclassicist, and what she lacks in conventional Austin elitism, she more than recoups in distaste for the Brontes." (laughs) Under her tutelage, I was raised on a partial survey of the Britlit canon, one particularly painful moment found me in tears at the tender age of ten, when, upon rereading the last chapter of David Copperfield, I became convinced that I would never find my Agnes, much as Dickens often despaired that he would never marry his wife's sister. He didn't. When we lived in England, before I had read much Austen or had any notion of the ongoing fealty she inspired, I was dragged along to see Austen's plaque in Poet's Corner at Westminster Abbey and the little Chawton Cottage where Austen spent so many years, and even to her grave in Winchester Cathedral. For a brief period, any childhood illness experienced by my sister or me was treated with six installments of the 1995 BBC Pride and Prejudice, (laughs) plus Dayquil to taste. As you can tell, ours was an eccentric household. But if Austen was omnipresent in that household, we didn't have all that much exposure to Jane that little coterie of Austen lovers who have read the novels innumerable times backwards and forwards, and who, most important, delight in clothing themselves like Austen's characters. You can call this dress up, or make-believe, or adults behaving like children. The widely preferred term in the 21st century is cosplay, a modish portmanteau of costume and play that still even after so many conferences and balls and Cornish teas, strikes a racy note in my imagination. The term is expansive and applies to people attending Star Trek conventions, or Kiss concerts, or Renaissance fairs, or Civil War reenactments, but also to various demimons of sexual role play. The cosplay remains the very thing about which Austen skeptics will mock J. Knights the most. Devotees of Tolstoy, or Pynchon, or Wolf, for example, do not make a habit of treating symposia as costume parties. And this threadbare seriousness sets them apart from the lacy zealotry of the Janeites. Now the first steps to infiltrate any secret society are simple. Learn the language. Make friends. Strive to approximate the dress code. Eventually, if you're lucky, you will set them at their ease. Even gain their trust. Then you write about them, of course. A betrayal that you hope earnestly they will forgive. She acknowledged it to be very fitting, writes the narrator in persuasion that every little social commonwealth should dictate its own matters of discourse, and hoped ere long to become a not unworthy member of the one she was now transplanted into. This, I think, is the essential attitude for reporting on any subculture. You must adapt yourself to the style, the cadence, of whatever little commonwealth you happen to find yourself in. In my case, when the time came for me to infiltrate the Jainites, I was partially prepared, at least genetically. It may be true that Jainism is an X-linked trait, inherited from one's mother, like colorblindness. Mom first attended Jasnah in 1987 at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, delivering a paper called Sisterhood and Friendship in Jane Austen's Juvenilia. But back then, Mom had not been an adept at the dress-up. She used to consider it, she says, beneath the dignity of a scholar, and in fact had never danced a minuet while wearing an empire waist gown, not until I dragged her into it anyway. Still, Mom knew from the start that Jainism was a big tent, in 1989, she gave a paper on friendship and pride and prejudice, a theme that's emerging here. At that year's Chatham meeting in Santa Fe, and mom was impressed when, att- when attendees at the banquet were asked to check their guns at the door. As I continued reporting on the J-Nights, sometimes wearing a top coat, with cravat, and breeches, other times in civilian clothes, I began to see myself as something of a hapless visitor in a place that many other people simply called home. A lady once described to me her first impressions on visiting Austin World. Finally, she said, a place where one can be oneself. It would be easy to mock this declaration as hollow. The woman speaking it, after all, was dressed at the time in an empire waist dress and a bonnet that must have been the very hottest new thing in about 1808, hardly a paragon of authenticity in the 21st century. But her statement, I think, contains a deep truth, for all the affectation, the regency dialogue and borrowed postures and dance moves of a different continent, a different age, there is somehow a holy frankness in the proceedings, a general sense of camaraderie and enterprise. Let's go mad a bit and argue over who stole the turkeys in Emma. Let's stroll through the quadrangle with parasols and lose ourselves in a better world that never existed. Austin mania is a collective folly, a religion in the sort of latitudinary and Anglican sense that stresses communion over orthodoxy, though I have been warned it is possible to be excommunicated. communicated. <laughs> Jainism is a shared fiction that we tacitly agree to treat as real, and by coming together we make it real. This is no small miracle. When you're with the Jainites, you often feel on the cusp of a homecoming. Janeites across the globe and across eras are united in the mystical properties that they find in material proximity to Austen herself, whether that material is an original signature or a coat or corset that requires you to adopt the posture of a different age. To dress as Mr. Darcy, or as Henrietta Musgrove, or Lizzie Bennett, or John Thorpe, God forbid, is to be transported, altered, swept backward in time, and to feel illusory or no, a closeness to an author as elusive as she is beloved. I never expected we should get so near Miss Alston in this world Anna Fitzroy wrote to her sister Eliza in 1852 That nearness is the secret and joy of J-night gatherings worldwide And I'm going to read you a really, really short final excerpt about two of the cutest people in the history of the world Hmm When friends and colleagues heard that I was reporting on the eccentric world of Jane Austen superfans, one question seemed to be uppermost. Do people hook up at Jane Austen camp? (laughs) At first I grew irritated at these inquiries, which seemed to assume that Austen cosplay is somehow centrally about sex. It's not really, it's mainly about books, and only a little about sex. Still, as I spent more and more time in the world of the Janeites, I came to meet quite a few older couples, for whom the Jane for whom the Jane Austen summer camp doubled as a romantic getaway, a chance to rediscover the pleasures of flirting with one's spouse. Some, in the tradition of the uh, critics R. W. Chapman and Catherine Metcalf, had fallen in love with each other, in part through discovering a mutual love for Austen. And there are various academic power couples across the world whose unions owe their beginning to an indiscreet moment at an Austen conference. As Kipling's narrator says in his 1924 short story called The Jane Ice. Austin remains a bit of a matchmaker even in death. And at the larger conferences, I occasionally met a child conceived, the parents assured me, with the aid of Austin's prose as aphrodisiac. (laughs) Most of the couples, though, are mixed couples, wherein one partner, often but not always the woman, a woman, that's actually what it says, is the true believer and the other partner a willing or sporting participant. On the first evening of the summer camp, I met one such couple, a vivacious pair of sixty-somethings, the woman slim and glamorous in her bonnet and evening gown, and the man stout and kindly in an officer's jacket, rarely taking his eyes off his wife, whom he regarded at all times with a smile of mingled deference and infatuation. While we sat together over a late dessert, they explained their routine. The husband had performed theater in his college days, the wife said, distinguishing himself in yellow stockings as Malvolio in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. He had never read a word of Jane, she told me, but the first time I asked him to join me at a Jazz Ball, he didn't blink. He went to have his fitting the very next day. The husband nodded at her and addressed me without looking at me. It is a bit like playing a role, he conceded, sounding almost bashful. And of course we have our games. He means courtship, she translated. <laughs> the man grinned as if it his own foolishness and put down his cake fork. Sometimes we will separate before the ball and observe one another from across the room, he began. His wife, unable to hold back, cut in. And sometimes we dance with other people. <laughs> the statement had a quality of risque confession, and she raised her eyebrows as though we were discussing a major scandal. The husband giggled. She lends me out, he explained. She won't tell you this, but I think it's because there are often so few men around, and she likes to see the women dancing. Liar, she declared in triumph. He's being very bad. The reason I have him dance with other people is so I can watch him. She squeezed his hand. He's very good. Her mate shook his head. We've been taking lessons for years, and I can claim only competence. The wife persisted. It is thrilling to watch him charm the others. They looked at each other, and she coaxed him. You can be so charming, and I'm not even sure you know it. But we always end up together, the man continued, dodging the compliment. After we spun the room with other people, that is. His wife leaned toward me and spoke in a stage whisper, widening her eyes suggestively. We always pretend that it's the first time we're meeting. That actually sounds really fun, I said. It is. My friends tease me about it. She paused and laughed. They say that we are kinky. <laughs> That's not what it's about, the man said quickly. That's not why. She now held his hand in both of hers. It's nothing improper, just a little game, a vacation almost. She broke off when they looked at each other, and it was difficult in that moment not to think of Admiral and Mrs. Croft in Persuasion, one of those older couples whose mutual good humor and evident marital bliss make such an impression on Anne Elliot. Like the Crofts, this couple has no children. And like the Crofts, after many years of marriage, they are still visibly in love. After a long, private pause—for its duration there was no one in the room except for the two of them— the husband turned to me, as though awakening, and said, It can be a pleasure to meet one's wife as a stranger. The following day, while stealing a quiet moment in the shade of a tree, I spotted the wife in close conference with two other women, one on each of her arms as they traced across the quadrangle en route to a plenary discussion on mothers and daughters in the novels of Austen. The husband followed them at a distance of a few paces, laden with various objets. Under his right arm, he carried a clutch of hardbound books, while his wife's reticule, a tiny period handbag, dangled from his wrist. On his left arm was a tote bag with an image of Colin Firth scowling in a frilly collar, and he busied his left hand, snapping photos of the three ladies in procession. Occasionally, he would stop to request that they turn around and effect a tableau. The ladies smiled and pretended to print their hair like Betty Boops of the Regency. Before the quartet exited my field of vision, I saw the husband bounding in pursuit of the three women, yelping a bit and waving the reticule in the air. When we bumped into each other the next day, he told me he was worried his wife had forgotten her heart pills. My wife's friends said I had made a spectacle of myself, he told me, smiling at the figure he had cut. Still, it would hardly have been good manners not to inquire. Oh. Thank you very much. We have time for, uh, for a couple of questions before we sign books. If anyone has burning questions. What do you think Austin thought that men thought about sex? Yes. Wow. <laughs> can, can you be more specific? Well. Did she think that men were, in, were interested in getting married for position or for title or for money or okay. or driven by more libidinous urges? What did men want? Great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so this wonderful gentleman over here has asked what, what Austin thinks men want. Um, I, I think she I think she covers it fairly exhaustively. She has the, the libidinous ones to, to use your term. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's see, Wickham and Willoughby, I think. These are some of the great, we got some nods. Wickham and Willoughby are sort of the... Mr. Palmer as well. The CADs, Mr. Palmer as well. we got one for Mr. Palmer over here. <laughs> this is great. Um, right, Mr. Yeah. Palmer wasn't CAD, wasn't no, it he? Was like, no, he, like, he can say in the book that he married Mrs. Palmer because she was young and beautiful and just kind um, of stayed with her because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, so, so there you have Cadishness turned, yes. <laughs> yes. turned uh, into a lifelong commitment yes. um, without wholesale reform. Yeah, I, I think she, she, she casts pretty wide that, right? You have the guys who are just abysmal cats, you have the cats who are behaving as though they're actual, you know, Darcys or something. You have the Darcys who are mistaken for, um, I guess, greedy snobs, I guess is the simplest way to describe them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Austin certainly, in the, in the novels, uh, portrays men as driven by all the desires you just uh, described. Um, and in some of the characters you see, various humors compete. You know, will the libido win out over the, you know, you know, marrying the older woman who has the bigger fortune, right? Like these are in competition with each other, um, and the heroes in general are pretty much free of any major, uh, I don't taint to their virtue, right? Like Mr. Knightley, the, mo- the worst thing that can be said of him is that he's a little boring, I think. <laughs> this is this is why you know argu- arguments that Austin's novels are fundamentally conservative occasionally ring true to me because like the men are such cutouts, you know? The good guys are, anyway. But the villains are very rich. And what writer today do you think is most like Austin? Most like Austin today. Let's see. Uh, Ian McEwen is often named as that as like a successor to Austin, which I get, I think, like, psychologically. I see why people say that. Um, uh, I, I think justifiably, uh, Adele Waldman's novel in 2014, The Love Affairs of Nathaniel Pete, was... Was discussed as like a modern Austen. It's a it's a good comedy of manners. It's all, it's all about sexual ethics. It's a, it's a really good book. Um, so I think those are those are two right? two options for you. Like... Yes, please, a enthusiastic stranger. <laughs> it seems like jazz and music, from the way you describe them, sort of combine um, scholarship culture and fan culture. Um, did you find that scholars could learn something from fandom, um, or vice versa? What you were that's a fantastic question. I'm, this is a small room. Everybody heard the question, right? Yeah. All right. What can scholars learn from Ben? Yeah, I, I think. Um, so first of all, you're right. These are interesting hybrid uh, events or hybrid spaces uh, where you have a lot of you know pretty high flying scholars, and you also have a lot of people who um, you know have never cracked open an academic journal, but are pretty well trained in like like agrarian and legal history. A lot of people know their contracts and marriage law really well from the Regency, if they're like deep into Austin. Much better than I do. Um, Having my done like, in grad school, so um, so yeah, I think fans actually come in with um, often with uh, like bodies of knowledge that we don't that, that like you know not every scholar has. Um, I will also say that the most interesting conversations at those conferences tend to be the ones that are like successfully truly hybrid, the ones where you have fan culture properly represented and like. Yeah, like in conjunction with um, with the scholars. To do that, you really need the scholars to, to meet other people halfway. You don't often have like the fan fictioners coming in and being like, you know, these scholars don't deserve to be in the same room as us, you know? Um, although, you know, they, there's no reason they couldn't say that. But they don't. Scholars do say that about fan fictioners, um, you know, as a rule. So, uh, so I don't know. I think it's really good training, uh, you know, as sort of anti-snobbishness training for academics to, to interact with the public and um, yeah, I'm not going to go off on a whole thing about like saving, saving the academy but I do think that um, that talking to normal people a little more often in, uh, in, in contexts like this that are about fun, they're about connection and like, especially around Jane Austen, right, she gives you a sort of blueprint for how to socialize uh, and have fun responsibly and meet people responsibly, and all this stuff. I mean, she's a sort of you know artist of sociability, which makes a lot of sense when you have people gathering around her like this. Um, so yeah, I mean, you identify what makes the conferences absolutely you know that's the best part of them is that um, occasionally tense but often really fruitful back and forth. Yeah, Paul? So um, you mentioned that you studied Austin grad school. I assume that I mean you also taught her in classrooms. A little bit, yeah. So. How is that different? Okay, you've got this world over here, where everyone's super into it. What was it like to try to, because that's, I think, too, you know, you have to interest the students in the material. What did you do to try to hook uh, them? It's a good question. I mean, the, you know, there, there are a handful of general gambits you can do. Um, you know, you can show them remixes, you can show them Clueless, show, show them the Amy Heckling movie, which is fantastic movie, even if you haven't read Emma, but it's even better if you recognize that it's, you know, it's a, more than an homage to Emma, it's just a reboot. Um, that's really great, and I think it actually hooks people. Like, I know a variety of people that I've met at a variety of awesome conferences who were, like, um, converted by that movie. Um, so you can go that route, right? You can go through the pop culture route. Um, I don't know, I, You know, having students sort of perform some of the scenes and, like, sort of dramatize them uh, worked really well. It, uh, it got some of the the gentleman in the room uh, to, I think, drop their guard a little bit. Um, and when you, when you have people playing these roles and actually sort of embodying them, even if they're not thinking about it that hard, it becomes more difficult for them to ask dumb questions. Like, why didn't Jane Austen just get a job, you know? Which is like the very common, you know, it's like, oh, well, she seems like she was a grief, you know, stuck in her house and, you know, dependent on her family, her male family members, you know. And the answer is that she had a job and did it very well, which is why we still talk about her. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's a sort of baseline of misogyny you need to get through with uh, a variety of, of, of women writers. I think Austin is certainly among them. Um, but, I don't know. Yeah, I think you can break through. I, w- I would recommend uh, making kids do some theater because I shouldn't call them kids. <laughs> 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 making bright young minds do some theater. Yeah. Yes? Can you say about this Kipling story, the Jane that?" Oh, was yeah. It is well. Okay, so uh, so the Kipling story is um it's, it's called it's called Janeites. Obviously, I think I told you that three times in the beginning. Uh, it's it's really fun. Um, it does uh George Orwell uh dinged Kipling in his poetry for using uh, dialect too frequently. Um, he found, I think Orwell found it a mix of like condescending and uh and something worse, maybe just exoticizing or something, but um. But, but, you know, the the story is shot through with sort of working class dialect. Um, Once you get into it, it's really working class dialect from 1922, uh, London. And uh, it's great. It is a really, really wild portrait of trauma, um, because it's all of these uh, people, uh, you know, I guess largely Freemasons, who have survived the war, most of them are crippled or maimed in some way, um, and also a little bit, um, well, shell-shocked, as we would have said at the time. Um, And Kipling lost his son in the war, uh, and had been it was just the one side in the war, and but he had he'd been a, a big drumbeat for it, and felt super guilty, and actually retreated to Bath for a while, um, and among other things, while he was there, in sort of not seclusion, but in sort of family grieving mode, uh, he like reread a whole bunch of Austen, uh, he'd do it aloud to the family, um, and so I, you know, those are the facts I know. I don't know if that you know compelled him to write the Janeites, but the way the story proceeds is that these you know, soldiers who survived. Um, are listening to this one working-class uh, mason called Humberstall, uh, who drops all of his H's and, and all that stuff. And he uh, he joined a group of Jane Knights, which is a secret society in the British Army, in 1915, I think. Um, and, and he just, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, oh, I know, it's a little Conrad. It's, it's, it's sort of, there are three layers to the story. Humberstall is recounting this whole thing. And it's couched within this additional frame of a slightly more upper-class veteran who's meeting Humberstall. So it's, I don't know. I'm maybe getting like, too details. <laughs> but 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 it's it's really really cool because um, you have these guys who are just so earnestly into Jane Austen, um, and they there's so much that they don't get about her, obviously. But there's so much that they do get, and like they name all the cannons after uh, they name uh, he painted Lady Ca- he got drunk one night and painted Lady Catherine de on one of the cannons, which is the name of like a you know really really mean older lady in Pride and Prejudice, and. Uh, and he, he got fined, and I think sent to the stops briefly, but uh, they reduced his sentence because they, they said that he had been accurate in characterizing the <laughs> um, as having some sort of similarity to Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Um It's interesting, it's like a portrait of like, class in the British Army and it's, it's very much like a portrait of these weird men who are sort of picking up the pieces six years after the war. Um, and as, as uh, Humberstall explains that like, you know, the Janeites uh, helped him uh, like, survive the war, Everyone else was like shit, like I wish we would had that in the Holy Land. I wish we had that. You know, when I was in Palestine, like we didn't have any book clubs. You know? And it's, it's it's sort of surreal, but it's it's a it's a very, very interesting like document of yeah, what we would now call like PTSD, So Anyway. Yes, please. There have been, I think in the last ten years or so, a number of folks that have ripped off channels that You have deaf members that come to Pemberley. PJs, and yeah. And then uh, we wrote Austin Land, which you know, have. Uh, I haven't read I, I heard it's fun, but I do not Do you think there's something in particular about art, about this particular time that we're in right now that kind of speaks to this desire to see Austin come on. It's, it's an interesting question. I want to be careful at generalizing about like decades and stuff, right? Because the 90s was a big boom right. for Austin um, mania in the sort of multimedia way. Um, and to me, it sort of feels like we've sort of been riding it. Um, I, I will say there are certain segments of the population who have been activated recently by um, some of the same things that people in World War II were activated by in looking back to Jane Austen for this sort of agrarian, georgic, pre-industrial like idol where there's like a real connection with the land and where people were careful about who they married. Um, and, and the people who are, really, who are really invested in that are generally... Um, well, there's a movement on the alt-right to co-opt Jane Austen as, a, as their laureate. Really? What? Did yeah. You about that? <laughs> well, that's sort of what I was. Yeah, I was sort of inching toward it. And I, just figured, I just rip off the band-aid. Yeah, it's happening. <laughs> but it's also it's it's doomed to sputter because um, I mean a lot of a lot of people will be wailing and gnashing their teeth out of Western civilization uh, and and how it's it's declining um, because of demographic reasons and stuff like that. I, it's funny because in Jane Austen, the people who care most about blood and lineage um, are not the, the cool people. They're, they're like, Sir Walter Elliot is the best person. He's like, morally speaking, he's like the best person who really thinks that much about blood and lineage, and he's a terrible person. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think these people are not reading J. Housen very closely. Um, <laughs> but, I, but that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I mean, there's, uh, I mean, she's not considered a romantic writer, but you can understand how like sort of uh, fascist romanticists might look back at this you know, connection to the land. It's, uh, I mean, they, they were landed gentry, right? The soil was right there, as was the blood. So, uh, so yeah. Um, but that's that's not what you're asking about. You weren't, you weren't asking, no, about your, the reaction your, here is. your thing is way Okay. <laughs> uh, Let's go there. I think, I think most of us, I mean, I think the reason people keep coming to these things, whether it's in the 20-teens or in the 90s, is, um, is, is not unrelated. Like, there's a sort of, uh, like, slightly more blissful, slightly more unquestioning enjoyment of, um, of the degree of prosperity. And also, like, in the Regency, right, you didn't see any of the slavery that was contributing to your wealth, so you could have these great parties that would be as good as any plantation party, but you didn't have to like, look at anyone who was suffering as a result. Um, which, uh, which I think, uh, which I think helps people. It's a little harder to be nostalgic uh, for like the empty bound South, say, in polite company, uh, than, than it is to be nostalgic for Jane Austen. Um, yeah, we all, we, all wish we had a neighborhood like that. I think, Max. What's next for you? What can we expect from you? Whew. Man, uh, dinner, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Get some sushi. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm working on some more nonfiction projects. We've got some great stuff in the works a specific Pacific Standard Magazine, to which you should all subscribe. Uh, and I'm working on some fiction too, which you guys might be able to read someday. Lyle, did you have a question? Or Boris? I, I had a question, but it's related it to what you were saying before. this. I think that's a great place to end, if you want to end it. Let's okay. do it. Yeah, let's talk some books. I'll yeah. let, let yeah. you guys go. Yeah. Oh, no, you, have, you have that wonderful uh, note about uh, Tolstoy and other authors that don't inspire cults of fandom the way that Austin does. Yeah. But Rowling does, right? J.P. You, mm, Rowling. Yeah. Uh, Tolkien. Uh, there's something about these immersive worlds, these overarching worlds between novels. It, it, it's a so, we can sing. And again, it's sort of, although Tokyo, it's like, it is pre-industrial, but it also has not industry has But like, but it, but it is the same sort of nostalgia, right, that we're thinking about. Is there something older and sort of truer and closer to the land, and you don't have to be a fascist to want some of that. Beautifully organized. Beautifully organized. That sounds a little fascist. But yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for coming. I'll talk to books.